Well, good morning, everybody. If you're uh, in the halls, you can come join us for our first Saturday seminar for Missions Emphasis Week. Uh, I think this was kind of a natural decision to have a Saturday seminar because we realized we had the great resource in Matthew Ellison in town, and we were going to have him speak for us on the, for our Lord's Supper on Wednesday, so we're like, we should really have an extra time to be able to talk about how our church is uh, a part of God's great commission and how we can grow in that. So I'm, I'm so thankful for you guys for coming. Uh, we have people streaming online. This will be available uh, to, to watch later on, too. We'll have it on our YouTube page. Uh, so you can recommend it to your friends. So uh, if you didn't see, we have our silent auction set up in the youth room already. Uh, we're going to have breaks, so don't you worry. We're going to have breaks where we'll have you go to the restroom and you can poke your head into the silent auction uh, when you have time. Uh, just for a point of clarification, because many of us haven't used those QR codes, I actually don't even feel comfortable saying QR codes because I'm not sure that's really what it's called. But uh, on each item... Almost all our items, we have some items that are only in-person purchasing or, or bidding, but most of our items are all on the web. Uh, so you're going to go and you're going to use your camera on your phone and you're going to put it over the QR code. You don't have to take the picture, just hold it over there and a website's going to pop up and you're going you're to click that and you're going to go to the web and you can bid on the items there. Uh, we think this is uh, the best way to raise the most money. Uh, it's a really uh, snazzy product. So we're really excited about that. I also put out this book, uh, Raising Kids with a Heart for Mission. This is free to you guys. If you have a friend, we have extra copies. So if you have a friend that you want to give that to uh, so they can disciple their children and prepare their hearts to be connected to the Great Commission, to be connected to the church abroad, uh, and maybe even they themselves go. So please grab that resource, make use of it, for your families. Uh, so this morning, I'm going to talk about Philipp uh, from Philippians, and we're going to talk about what it looks like to be a church that is committed to the Great Commission. And then Matthew Ellison, our, uh, one of our guest speakers, is going to come, and he's going to share with you guys, and then there's going to be a time for a Q&A. And then on the video, we're going to actually go dark, so you're not going to be able to watch it, sorry. There's still time to come if you're tuning in, uh, but we're going to have the C family come, and they're going to share about uh, stories from the perspective of the unreached North Africans. So they're going to share stories from unbelievers and give you a feel of what their lives are like and what lostness looks like. And then they're going to share stories from their church, from the perspective of the North African believer. So uh, they're going to also have time for a Q&A. So I think it's going to be uh, a really special time. So please join me as I pray for our morning. God, we praise you for all the things that you've done that we've seen and we've observed, how you've protected us, how you have uh, sanctified us how you've brought us to faith. But Lord, we also praise you for the unseen things that you've done, and we just don't know about it. You've protected us. You've guided us in ways that we, we don't know, and we will only know 
when we're with you in eternity. So Lord, we just praise you for you are good in ways both seen and unseen. Lord, we pray that you would use this morning for your glory, use it for the blessings and the spreading of, of your glory broader to unreached places. Help us to be a church that is committed to the Great Commission and spreading the good news of Jesus Christ, that there's salvation in him alone, that there's only one way, one gate into heaven, and it's through Jesus. Help us to share that good news with the North Africans and the Achi in Guatemala and the Navajo. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I am a big fan of professional sports. Um, for most games, I prefer, I say I'm a big fan, and maybe many of you will disagree because I actually don't watch the games. Because, like, I love college football, but it's, three, it's like a three-and-a-half-hour commitment. So I'll watch the extended highlights. Like, I try not to watch the game, and, but if you wait, like, 12 hours, you can watch, like, 15 minutes of highlights of the game. You get, the, I think, almost the full experience, and you don't have to, like, ruin your Saturday. So I really love that, but I'll make an exception for any championship game. I, you know, I'll just kind of apologize to my wife. I think I had to recently do this, like, sweetie, it's, it's the Women's Softball World Series. I have to commit, you know, two hours of my life to this. Uh, you know, or you watch the, you know, the big sports, the Super Bowl or whatever. And one of the funny things about uh, watching these professional games, uh, these championships, is at the end, when they're celebrating, they always bring in the guy that has no reason to be there. He's half the size of all the other players. Uh, he, he may have a, a cigar in his mouth. He's clearly not an athlete, but he's the owner, and he gets to take the first speech and you know probably take the trophy home with him. But recently, I've been observing, how, and maybe you have too, that there's this new class of owner the Moneyball owner, if you've seen the movie Moneyball, are familiar with the Oakland A's and how they've used uh, economic theory to advance their sports team, their, their baseball team. Well, these guys are different. These guys, these owners are committed. They're, they're in the locker rooms. They, they're hiring the nutritionists, the sports psychologists, whatever that is. They're, they're identifying the needs of the players and meeting those needs. They're very committed. I know I followed uh, the Boston Red Sox owner, bought Liverpool a soccer team, and he helped them go all the way to the championship by using these theories and by meeting the needs of the players. So it's funny, you have these two different types of owners. You have the cigar-smoking, disinterested guy who bought a team as a, a vanity project, and then you have the other guy who's deeply invested down to, you know, using spreadsheets to figure out how to maximize the effectiveness on the field. Well, I think when we look at missions, we tend to think of the supporting individuals as more the disinterested owner, as the guy, the people that give, write the check mindlessly. But that is not what the Apostle Paul has in mind when he talks about missions partnership, when he talks about what it's like to receive a gift from a church. And that's not what this church is. We are a church that's committed to the field. And I think this is the language that really got me thinking about this. And in Philippians, Paul says that they shared in his troubles. Or another translation says they shared in his afflictions. 
This isn't a disinterested ownership. This is a deep investment, one that costs, one that is on the mind of the senders and the supporters. And what's really neat is Paul doesn't just say that they are like this, but he actually gives reasons why they are are sharing in his afflictions. And there are four reasons and ways that we can grow in sharing in the afflictions of our missionaries. So I want to talk about those this morning. So uh, the first one is they gave. And we are called to give. So both in chapter 1, we're just going to look at broadly uh, the book of Philippians. So this isn't like a, uh, our sermons where we really stick to a text and, and are uh, getting the most out of one, a couple verses or maybe a little bit more. But I'm actually be bouncing around the book of Philippians. So in chapter 1, verses 3 to 11 and four, chapter 4, 10 to 20, Paul's going to speak of their gospel partnership. But it's through the symbolic renewal of their partnership by them giving money. Their partnership is symbolically renewed by the gift of money. In both passages, Paul is rejoicing over a financial gift. And, and he gives three reasons in both of these chapters. So my first, the first one is, it's a partnership revived. So upon receiving the gift, Paul rejoiced, rejoices, and it's not because he loves money. No, he's not a prosperity gospel preacher. You know, prosperity gospel, this, this lie that makes less of the gospel, but it says the good news is that you can be, if you follow Jesus, he'll make you healthy, wealthy, and wise. And it just makes so little of the gospel. i got to tell you, the gospel is so much better than that. It's so much better news than that because God can actually make you happy when you aren't wealthy. He can actually give you something that's more valuable than money that perishes. Not to say little of money. Money is valuable. Paul's not discounting that, but he's, you know, money can do things. He was in jail. It could have got him a lawyer. It could have got him a pillow. It could have got him food or better food. If, it, if he had a leaking roof, it would have fixed that. Money does stuff. But that's not why Paul is rejoicing. No, he's rejoicing because this is symbolically renewing the partnership. You know, a lot of organizations use partnership language. Uh, I've been to a church that chose to call their members partners. A little weird for me, but that's fine. Uh, I know Starbucks calls their employees partners. I don't know if that's fair. I don't know if they actually get like a commission or are invested in the stock because they work there. But it makes sense in the sense that they're, they're invested in the vision and, and making the vision of Starbucks come to be, whatever that means. I, I'm not a Starbucks person. Uh, but partnership involves being invested. It has skin in the game. And it's easy to, to fall into the trap of just saying, oh, Paul's just using flattering language, you know, the thank you letter. Maybe you already had it pre-written, you know, and you insert the church name. No, that is not it at all. This is a sacrifice that he is recognizing. In 2 Corinthians 8, it should, Paul talks about how this church, this Philippian church, was actually poor, and they were giving. He said, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. 
For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, on their own accord. It's pretty cool. This church was invested, and they gave sacrificially in a way that hurt in a way where they did the math and thought, well, this is probably what we should give. Let's, let's, let's bump it up a bit. They're, they're, they may not be in the trenches with Paul, but they're supporting him in a way that's sacrificial, beyond their means, according to Paul. And this gift represented that partnership. The second way Paul rejoices both in chapter 1 and in chapter 4 about this gift is that they are going to receive a reward for this. He's excited not because this is going to fix the leaky roof, but they are going to receive an eternal reward. And he's excited about them because he loves them like he loves himself. They are joint partners in this business. And if you have a business and you have a joint partner, that means they have a a stake in the rewards, right? When you sell that business to some other bigger business, you're going to get a portion, and they're going to get a portion. And Paul is excited because now they're going to get a a portion of the rewards of bringing the gospel to unreached places. This is amazing. In uh, chapter 417, he says, I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. This terminology is actually banking terminology. They're getting interest, compounding interest on the investment they have made. Is that how you see your your offerings? I hope you do. When you give to this church, about 20% of all your giving goes to missions. And you are, and then the other 80% goes towards gospel proclamation in Albuquerque. It goes towards providing a salary for pastors who are gospel ministers. It goes towards helping local church planning initiatives. It, it helps our discipling our young people. All this gospel stuff. You're getting, you're investing and you are accruing interest in eternity. Do you know that? I mean, Jesus gives us his righteousness. He saves us. He is our righteousness alone. And it's like in the Garden of Eden when God clothes Adam and Eve in their shame with the skins of animal. Christ clothes us with his righteousness. And yet, we have to have a category that there is a way of investing in heaven and building up blessings in heaven. As, Matthew, uh, as Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Everyone, everyone is either investing in earth or you're investing in heaven. And here, Paul is elated because of their investments in eternity. They're invested in the kingdom of God. Everything else will be destroyed, but not the things of God. And so Paul is joyful. It's an investment in the ministry. It's an investment in heaven. So the Philippian church was poor, but they still gave. And my encouragement to you is, 
to give. And that's going to look different for every person. You know, Jesus celebrated the woman who gave, the, the widow who gave the mite. I looked that up. That is one sixty-fourth of a day's labor. Is that like a dollar? Well, if a dollar a month is too much for you, give 50 cents. And that may seem silly, but I want to just make the point. This is, you're not giving to impress me. The elders and myself don't know how much you give. Give. Invest in heaven. Invest in the work of God and the gospel going forth. I remember when I was a kid and I, we had missionaries come. We had peop, uh, missionaries from India that came and sh- showed pictures of what life was like in India. And that's just shocking to a kid growing up in Oklahoma. And you just think all those animals are so scary. We had another pastor from Russia who came and he, did the, he showed us the training he does for the pastors there in Russia. It was all amazing, and I, I remember the thing that really stuck out to me is at the end they had to ask for money, and I just thought, oh, I'll, I could never do that. Well, I had a wrong view of what was happening there. This wasn't begging like some person on the street. This is, at, this is seeking out gospel partnerships that bless the people who give. And so a Paulian-type missionary is going to ask to, for you to give so that you can receive. Receive in eternity. And then the third thing that Paul does in each of these chapters is he's excited. He's excited for the partnership. He's excited because they're going to reap the reward. And he's excited because God's going to receive the glory. And so... Uh, when he's uh, talking about their stake in heaven, he then transitions and he talks about how God can receive the glory through their giving. And this is amazing because this is the same book where Paul is mentioning Philippians 4.13, Tim Tebow's verse, I can do all things through Christ that strengthens me. And he's saying, no, 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 That's, I can endure all hardships. The money, I don't need it. I can be poor. I can be in jail and I can rejoice, but I'm, he's excited because God is going to receive the glory. And that's the end of missions, right? That's the goal of why we go out, so that God can receive the praise that's due his name. He's excited because when you give, you're saying God's enough. And that you want him to receive the glory. The second way that they're partnering and that they're sharing in his trouble is that they pray. So look at chapter 1, verse 19. It's really easy to gloss over the importance of prayer. But here Paul prays for his deliverance or his salvation, which one commentary pointed out to me that this is uh, literally the prayer that Job prays when he says, this will be my salvation. So we can know that Paul is trusting in the the means of God to preserve him to the end. That one day when he stands before God and he's either going to get, well done my good and faithful servant, or a depart from me for I I never knew you, he knows he's going to get a well done my good and faithful servant because of the means of God. And the means of God is a prayer of the church. Do you know that? That we're a part of God's means of preserving believers 
We're a part of that. And so when we pray for our missionaries, one of the things we need to do is pray that God would preserve them, preserve their faith, that they would hold fast to Jesus. We need to be, your prayers are effective. I like the King James to say, it availeth much. Your prayers are powerful. And so pray for your missionaries, which involves knowing them. We got to know them. We, they send out a prayer uh, email. I'd encourage you to be on that. Our community groups share videos of them sharing what's going on in their lives. These are ways we can pray for them. But join alongside and be God's means of preserving them and of doing the work of evangelism in those areas. So I had some points of what we could be praying for. You know, they, our workers, like you, will always love it if you pray for their kids' salvation. You know, just because they're a missionary doesn't mean their kids are saved. That doesn't, you actually don't get saved just because your parents are a missionary or because your parents are, you know, volunteering in Sunday school. You know this. It's a work, it's a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit to save sinners. And so pray that God would save their children. We should be praying for their safety. This is dangerous work and people can respond violently to it. Pray for their safety. Pray for the families that get left behind. You know, this is a big sacrifice for the workers, but it's also a big sacrifice for the parents that don't get to see their kids for two years. I mean, you know, every two years they get to see their kids. That's a, that's a lot of growing for a grandkid. Pray for them. Pray that they would rely on the Lord. Pray that God would bless them and they would hold fast to the blessings to come when they are with the Father in heaven. Pray that their work would go unhindered. There are so many things that can slow down work. For example, a global pandemic can make it hard to see your friends. Pray that our, their work would go unhindered, that there wouldn't be wars, that the, the politics of the day wouldn't interfere with their work. Pray for their language, that they would be able to communicate effectively, and that God would even use their babbling and their strugglings and their, their poor grammar to still make the gospel clear. Pray for clarity in the gospel. Pray for boldness. You know what it's like to share the gospel and, and to, to, to fear rejection and an ending of a relationship, but we still want to do it. And so pray for, that the Holy Spirit would give them boldness and that he would open the ears of those that they share the gospel with. Be a part of God's spreading glory in North Africa, in Guatemala, in, among the Navajo, by praying for our gospel partners. Our prayers are effective. We must give, we must, we must send, we must go, but we must pray. And to do that, we need to know our missionaries. We need to be their support. Uh, as I get older, I, I'm more interested in the, like I find the supporting of wars interesting, like in the movie uh, Dunkirk, uh, which there's a couple of them, which is about a real event where the allied army of England and France were trapped in by the Germans in World War II. And there's not, it's, it's not a saving Private Ryan storming the beaches, except the opposite, where they're storming the beaches to get out of there. And it was the, the logistical support. What, this is the nerdiest start of any sentence. The logistical support of sending the merchant marines and fishing boats to go and get them out of there. Yeah, these guys in the fishing boats 
couldn't say they knew what it was like to be in a foxhole, but they were joint partners. And, and the soldiers were so thankful for them. They would be dead otherwise if they hadn't come. You are not in the foxhole, but you can know and share in the, in the sufferings of our saints that are going out for us. Thirdly, this church was a sending church. They were a church that gave, they were a church that prayed, but they were a church that sent. In chapter 2, verse 25, he said, I have thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. So Epaphroditus was the one that came with the financial gift, this love offering to the Apostle Paul to, to support his ministry, to further it along. And then Epaphroditus was told to stay and to serve, we're left to assume. And he was a great servant. He's a great fellow soldier for the Apostle Paul. Paul literally said, he completed what was lacking in your service to me. You know, we there's... Prayer, uh, prayers and sending emails are so great, but there is something we can't do. There's sometimes that itch we can't scratch unless we're there. You know, there's something we lose as Americans when we really value tasks over time with people in that relationship, and we learn a lot about that in Guatemala. But there is a value in sitting with them and knowing what they're experiencing day to day, and we need to send people to do that to encourage them when they're discouraged, there's ways, you know, we don't, I, I don't know, I'm sure someone does more than me, uh, what Paul was experiencing day to day, but we can know that Epaphroditus was able to help, maybe with being a gopher, doing to-do lists. There are certain things even a short-term missionary can do that is very helpful, that can complete what is lacking in our service to our workers. There are certain things we can provide. You know, at DSC, we, we send medical uh, teams that are able to go and, and make these churches uh, a beautiful uh, incense to God and the people there because they know, you know what, these churches love us. They provide a medical clinic every year. There are certain ways that we can only serve if we're actually there. You know, and, and today it's very common for, for missionaries and, and pastors to, to discount uh, short-term mission trips and to say they're even wrong. And I think they have good meaning behind it. And there are a lot of short-term mission trips that should just stop. The locals don't want them. They don't ask the locals what they want. Uh, it's not evangelistic. It's not, it's not a service in a way that's helpful. There's a lot of bad that's going on here. But notice Epaphroditus is a short-term missionary. He, he went and he came back. And there wasn't this goal of staying there forever. I think he's the ultimate short-term missionary, and you can know this because he almost died. He must have drank the water or, or had some street food, some vendor food, and we all know what that's like. Um, but we shouldn't, we're not going to cancel our short-term mission trip because there are ways we can serve our partners in ways we can't do if we're just sending them an email, if we're just sending them a check. Sending a check is very valuable. Paul does not discount it. He celebrates it, rejoices it. And, but there are ways we can serve. There are ways we lack unless we actually send someone. We have to send. We have to be a sending church. 
Yes, we have to do it wisely. We have to, we have to take into account what the, the people on the field say that's needed, the strategy there. What does a church want? What makes the church look best there? What furthers their gospel ministry? Yes, we've got to ask these questions, but we can't cancel them. We've got to keep sending. If, if we canceled everything that had a consequence of sins, we wouldn't do anything. So Epaphroditus is this example of a short-term mission, missionary. Uh, one of the things we do is we have a lot of short-term trips to the Navajo. The woodcutting ministry is, is that, by definition. We're able to serve them in a way we couldn't otherwise by just sending a check. We bring so much wood to the Navajo and I think we need, uh, Lee Scott gives a lot of his time to do that. We need more Lee Scotts who are saying, I want to make Pastor Tooley and Pastor Eugene uh, a beautiful incense to God and to the people there where they know if I need firewood, if I need, if I need prayer, if I need to talk about the gospel, I know who to go to. And, you know, one time I was actually my halfway to counselor my daughter had an allergic reaction. We end up with an EMT. It was a whole thing. It was scary. And I was talking with the EMT person as things were calming down. And she knew who Pastor Tooley was. And a large part of it was because of the firewood ministry. It, it, it makes the, that church beautiful in the eyes of the community. And obviously that doesn't say firewood will not save you. But the gospel message that Pastor Tooley shares with, the, with those people who come will, if it's received in faith. So let's keep doing short-term mission trips. I'd encourage you, come and join us for our Navajo uh, ministry. So he, Paul called him a minister of his need. And, and, and that's who we should be. Uh, even our Guatemalan partners asked us this year, they said, COVID's been really hard. They, you know, I know one person that's died from covid uh, Ether knows many because they didn't have the medical situation that uh, we do. You know, they're as good of a health care. And you know what they literally asked for us for this year was to send them a team to just love on them. They asked for an Epaphroditus trip. Isn't that incredible? We have that relationship. And you say, well, where's the gospel in that? We have people sharing the gospel. Uh, Pam Burkett was a part of uh, sharing the gospel with a, a young man who ended up coming to the Lord and has, has forsaken uh, an alcohol addiction. Uh, we're a part of that, even though we don't, some of us don't have Spanish to do that. God's using it because it's a long-term relationship where we're seeking the best interest of the church and gospel expansion. And lastly, this is a church that goes. So I, I don't actually have a great verse for that, but we know Epaphroditus did go. <laughs> And we are, told, we are called to go. Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations. This great call that he gives. Uh, and and we, uh, this church is a church that goes. And we need to be a church that goes. We had the C's and the G's that went. If there are uh, Paul, the Philippians didn't even have Paul. But he was sent out from Antioch. But they did send out this short-term worker. Uh, we need to be a church that goes goes and money can't be an issue people bring up short-term trips and how much money they cost or whatever uh money's not the issue a lack of vision is the issue you know there there are people that come in and say hey if you had i've heard of this from other churches hey if i gave you this much money uh what would you do with it and the church won't have a good answer and the person just goes and gives it to salvation army well that's not gospel ministry 
As far as I'm concerned, that church just lost out money for the kingdom. You know, uh, I, we know God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Money is not the issue. A lack of vision is the issue. A lack of passion for the unreached. So don't let that slow you down. So when we do, when we go, it teaches us things. It teaches us strategies. You're, if you go on a short-term trip, you're going to learn from our workers, our gospel partners like Ether, our missionaries. You're going to learn things like uh, the strategy of a missionary where they're going to, you know, often they eat at the same places. Well, why do they do that? So they can actually build a relationship with those people and have a gospel conversation. You're going to see the value of the church in, in its gospel witness. You're going to uh, see that the value of, of the reputation of the church, and you're going to be a part of enhancing that reputation. You know, when we go to Guatemala, we go to churches. Every place we serve, we go to a church. You're going to, you're going to encourage the local churches in its membership. We have people now in Guatemala that are going to Southern Seminary. We have Christ Church has been leading some guys through not the nine marks of a healthy church, those little books, and they've been going through that. You're going to build lifelong relationships that are to the glory of God. You're going to learn how to evangelize as we uh, train you how to share the gospel. Uh, Short-term trips are important, and we should be people that go. We should be people that give. We should be people that pray. We should be people that send, and we should be people that go. Let me pray for you. God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for how you have uh, given the Philippian church as a model for for caring for missionaries. In many ways, we're doing that, Lord, and we just praise you. We praise you. There is so much faithfulness going on. Uh, we, we thank you, Lord. But we can always grow. We're not in heaven yet. We're not fully sanctified. So, Lord, convict us where we have fallen short, uh, both corporately and individually. Show us how we could be better at giving, how we could be better at, at uh uh, praying for our, our partners. How could we be better at ascending and, and who among us should be going? Lord, we pray that you would do a good work for the sake of the gospel going forth, for the sake of sinners who, who need to hear your good news, for the sake of the, the Guatemalan churches that are, are in many ways needing um, reformation and, and to go back to holding to the gospel. And, and to forsake cultural uh, values over the gospel. And, 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 and most of all, Lord, we pray that you would help us to do this for your glory. May you be known in these places. May you be praised. You deserve more songs. You deserve more worshipers. You deserve more praise. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, guys, we're going to actually take a... Uh, 15-minute break. Let's say 14 at 9.50. We're going to start again, and Matthew's going to talk, and then you're going to have a... So when Matthew's talking, I'd encourage you to save some questions cause, so we're going to have time for a Q&A. And then uh, during the break, uh, feel free to check out the auction. Thank you, guys. You can make your way, unless you're bidding it up, and then yeah, I'll, I'll give you a pass. Uh, so I've been really excited to have uh, Matthew Ellison come and speak and partly because some of you guys don't know who he is and 
Uh, he means a lot to me and our staff. He's been a, he helped DSC uh, establish our vision for missions and what it looks like to be a church-based team and, and what it looks like to, uh, to really go after the un, unreached in a strategic way and not a haphazard way. Uh, he's a guy that if when I'm kind of murky on something, I know to just invite him to coffee and he'll straighten me out. So I really enjoy him. He's a, he, I feel like he's done everything in life. So he's, I can't even start to begin. Was it bungee jumping you did at one time? So he is, he has owned every business, done everything. Very uh, faithful brother who runs 1615, who goes around the country and helps churches uh, be more strategic in how they, they uh, impact and, and go after the unreached and bringing the gospel to them. So, uh, Matthew, come up here, and I, I just want to pray for you, our time, and, and uh, for, your, for your ministry. Always thankful to be with you. Uh, God, we just thank you so much for uh, Matthew's uh, ministry. Most of all, we thank you for saving him. Uh, you are so gracious, and you work through sinners, and, and you uh, have gone after uh, Matthew, and you've left the 99. And, and, Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you for now how he is uh, helping us to, to go after that one, that one unreached people group. Uh, when uh, it's so easy to just stay with the, the, the reached 99. Lord, we just pray that you bless his ministry in our time together this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, brother. I love this place. Uh, such a great church. The focus on the gospel, the exaltation of Jesus, the making missions central, part of your culture, part of your atmosphere. I just love this place, and it is an honor to be a part of Missions Emphasis Week here. When Paul the Apostle recalled the church in Philippi that Josiah just talked about, did such a great job too. When he recalled this church, this joy was evoked within him. The, the words he uses, um, they imply celebration. He, he would recount the church of Philippi, and he would celebrate because of their partnership in the gospel from the first day until now is what he says. They partnered with him in the beginning and they continued throughout his ministry. And so with every thought of them, he rejoiced, he gave thanks, and he prayed for them. And So I have to say, with every thought of DSC, I celebrate. I give thanks to God. Not only because this is my church, but we've been partners in the gospel since 2005. That's when I first came alongside DSC and help the development of, of the vision you now know. And I've been blessed by the partnership that has continued. So, again, I love this place. And I'm just so honored to be with you this morning. If you have your Bibles, and uh, you likely do, because you have a smartphone, right? I don't think anyone can have an excuse anymore about not having their sword handy. Uh, turn with me to Romans chapter 15. I'm going to read 10 verses. I'm going to pop around a little bit as well, like Josiah did. But I want to use this text here to lay the foundation for what I'm going to share this morning. And it's very relevant to DSC. So we're going to draw some parallels. But let's pick it up in Romans 15, 14 through 24. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God 
to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God. So that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. So what are you known for? And by you, I mean you personally. I'm not talking about DSC corporately. What is it that you are known for? If I were to connect with some people that know you well and ask some questions like, what is this person known for? What is this person's purpose? What, what are their priorities? What are they all about? What would those answers reveal about you? Just pause on that for a minute. I'm introduced to some people who know you, they've observed you, and I ask them what it is you live for. What would their answers reveal about you? Well, for those who knew Paul the Apostle, um, there was no guesswork. They knew exactly what mattered most to him. And in fact, if, if we look at the body of his New Testament work and his writings, what clearly stands out can be summed up in five words. Knowing Christ, making Christ known. This is what they would say. Maybe not they wouldn't use those words or that phrase, but that's what they would tell you about Paul the Apostle. He had a passion to know Christ and to make Christ known. He had gospel ambition. His heart was ablaze to know Jesus. He lived to worship him. And it was precisely his love for Christ that fueled his mission's flame to see the nations glorify God for his mercy. Paul's gospel ambition gave context and meaning and purpose to all areas of his life. It defined his mission and it shaped how he lived. So this morning we are going to address why DSC goes through all the effort and trouble and hardship, frankly, of sending missionaries to the hard places. And it can be summed up in two words, gospel ambition. This is why this church sends missionaries to some of the most difficult places on the planet. So I want to start off with defining what gospel ambition, what is it? And we see this in verses 20 through 23. Paul was controlled by this gospel ambition. It says in verse 22, 
that his gospel ambition was the reason he was hindered from coming to Rome. And then in verse 23, he says, I have longed for many years to visit you in Rome. So when you have a longing to do something for years and years and years and you don't do it, something else must be controlling you to the contrary, right? You want to do something, but you're hindered from doing it. There must be something else that is controlling you. What was it that was controlling Paul from going to Rome? It was gospel ambition. You see, he had not yet finished his work of making Christ known in the regions from Jerusalem to Illyricum. And he says in verse 24 that he has no more room for work in these regions. So now I'm freed to head to Spain to do gospel ambition work there. And along the way, I'm going to stop and pass through and hopefully get to see you. So he was consumed by an ambition to preach the gospel to those who had never heard his name in the regions from Jerusalem to Illyricum. And he would not turn from this work until it was fulfilled. He says his work in these regions is now done, and we're going to talk more about that later. It's very insightful. And now his ambition again is taking him to Spain to proclaim Christ, and he's finally freed to visit this church. So do you have gospel ambition? Do I? Have gospel ambition? Do we have desire to see peoples who have never heard of Jesus trust him, treasure him, be saved by him, and to glorify him for his mercy? Or do you think, well, I love Jesus, but missions just isn't my thing. Uh, missions is important, but it's not what I'm called to. And so maybe you give yourself the I'm not an apostle pass. So one of the things I want to address this morning, is gospel ambition something that all of God's children should even possess? Is it something for only some of God's children? We're going to dig in deeper and find out the answer to those questions. What I want to draw now is this idea that this gospel ambition that Paul had and that we have as a church too is founded and fueled by Scripture. This is very important. Verse 21, those who have never been told of him will see him and those who have never heard will understand so again and again in verses we're not going to get into this but you can look it up later 9 10 11 and 12 he talks about scripture old testament prophecy and then here in verse 21 he's quoting these old testament references to remind us that the gospel is for all peoples not just for jews Verse 21 is a quote of Isaiah 52, 15. Now, this is remarkable to me. It's amazing, in fact. We know from several references in the book of Acts that Paul had an encounter with Jesus on the Damascus Road, right? We, we know this. And it was a stunning encounter. It was a crisis of encounter. He sees Jesus He's literally blinded. He's knocked to his rear end. And then we know eventually he's given this mission to be a light to the Gentiles. So when you think about this, Paul's mission to proclaim the gospel to the nation, to the Gentiles, was straight from Jesus. And yet here in Romans 15, he doesn't talk about what happened on the Damascus Road. 
I probably would have. I probably would have gravitated to, here's this sensational thing, this spectacular encounter I had with Jesus, but that's not what Paul does. When he's validating his call to take the gospel to the nations, and he's talking about this consuming passion to preach Christ to the Gentiles, he quotes Isaiah 52.15. His gospel ambition, folks, was founded and fueled by the Bible, by God's self-revelation to his people. This is where his calling to reach the Gentiles came from. So here's the point. We should not be waiting around for a supernatural encounter to confirm our calling into missions. We will likely never have an encounter like Paul had on the Damascus Road, at least not as spectacular. And I'm not suggesting that Jesus doesn't at times meet his children in dramatic fashion. I have had a few intimate encounters with Jesus since he rescued me in 1993. And I cherish those times. They've had a profound impact on me. I pray for more of them. But here's the point. We do not need a Damascus Road experience to convince us that we should care about God's plan to reach all nations. Why? Because we have more Bible than Paul had. And the Bible tells us from Genesis to Revelation, folks, that the gospel is for all peoples. The gospel must reach those who've never heard. So we don't need a voice. We have a verse. And in fact, we have lots of verses, actually. We've got lots of them. And Paul just happens to quote, again, Isaiah 52, 15 here in verse 21. But, but if just read chapter 15. He's drawing from Old Testament references, saying that this is the heart of God that there would be a redemption of all peoples, representatives from every nation, tribe, and tongue. So I pray that the Bible would inform and inflame our gospel ambition as a body of believers. The Bible is the best missions mobilizer that there is if it is taught and read as one master story. The Bible's one story. It is God's epic story of redemption. It is this unstoppable, unstoppable epic of God calling out worshipers from every nation, every tribe, and every tongue. It's been called by many people the grand narrative of the Bible. Yes, there are many subplots, sub-themes, but the Bible is about God's plan of redemption for all peoples. And Paul knew this, and so his gospel ambition that the nations would glorify God for his mercy was founded and fueled by the Bible. That's profound. Again, that's why I love this church, because we teach the Bible verse by verse. We let the scriptures speak for themselves, which is why, in fact, missions is not in the margins here. It is a part of our atmosphere, part of our very identity, because we're drawing from scripture to help us understand how we're to relate to the world and be a part of his purpose Second point here, and I've already hit on this, um, I've already alluded to it, but it's focused on regions beyond. Paul's gospel ambition and ours too is focused on regions beyond. And we see this in verses 14 through 19 and then in verse 23. And three times in verses 14 through 19, again, you can read it later, um, look it up and reference these things. Paul writes about the focus or you might say the object of his gospel ambition. Gentiles, Gentiles, 
Gentiles. Uh, the Greek word here for Gentile is ethnos, meaning ethnic groupings, language groups, people groups with distinct languages and cultures that make it difficult for the gospel to spread naturally from one to the other. Folks, this is precisely why the gospel must be exported by missionaries. It doesn't naturally spread through those language and cultural barriers. If our thought is, let's just grow where we're planted in hopes that the gospel will eventually reach the whole world, it's not going to happen. We must take it and export it into each language, culture, and people group. Uh, This word ethnos here is the same word that Jesus uses when he gives the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28, 18 through 20. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, ponta, ta, ethne, people groups, language groups. And then he says, and surely I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. Just pause on that one for a minute. This is not related to this message, but it's a bonus here. Don't you love that the Great Commission mandate to make disciples of all nations is sandwiched between these promises, this, this promise of his power and the promise of his presence? He says, therefore, Go. The mandate to make disciples of all nations, folks, is literally based upon the greatness of Jesus Christ. So he doesn't leave the command to make disciples of all nations hanging in the air. He sandwiches it between the promise of his power, and then he says, I am with you always to the end of the age, speaking of the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit. So we have the Great Commission sandwich. We're buttressed by power and by his presence. And again, Paul's words here in Romans 15 are the same that Jesus uses here I want to go back to Romans 15. I want to take a closer look at verses 19 and 23 in Romans 15. I mentioned I was going to come back to this. He says some just crazy things here. From Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And then in verse 23... He says something even more stunning. I no longer have any room for work in these regions. Now, what on earth is he talking about? What does he mean? Fulfilled his ministry? I no longer have any room for work in these regions. These are incredible statements. Were the churches that Paul had planted fully mature spiritually? I mean, just read your epistles. I mean, Corinth could have used him indefinitely. Corinth alone could have benefited from Paul staying there for his entire ministry career, if you will. Weren't there tens and thousands of people who still needed to be evangelized in these regions? You awake this morning? Were there tens and thousands of people that still needed to be evangelized in these regions? Absolutely. Was there suffering and injustice, poverty, prostitution, yes, all these things. But Paul made the distinction between evangelism and missions, and so should we. Both are necessary, but they're not the same. Paul was focused on Gentiles, people groups, living in regions beyond, because in those regions, folks, among those groups, there were no evangelizing churches. The church did not exist. There was no church there to meet the needs, to be salt and light, to do those gospel deeds that bring glory to Christ. There were no churches. Now, it's worth noting, 
what Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, 5. I love this. He says, do the work of an evangelist. Timothy was doing his work, fulfilling his calling, where Paul had planted churches. And it's worth noting that he does not tell Timothy to do the work of a missionary, but he says, Timothy, you do the work of an evangelist. So evangelism and missions are necessary for the life and the vitality of both the church and the world, but they're not the same thing. And I would encourage you, don't make them the same thing. It has unintended consequences. They're both necessary for the life and the vitality of the church and the world. George Murray, who was chancellor of Columbia International University, has these phrases, and I think they're really helpful here. He says, evangelism is helping people believe in Jesus. Missions is helping people know there is a Jesus to believe in. Do you see the difference? Evangelism is helping people believe in Jesus. Missions is helping people know there is a Jesus to believe in. He says evangelism is growing the church where it is. Missions is going where the church isn't. Now, there's some more nuance if we unpack those terms, but I think those phrases are helpful in helping us to understand the difference between missions and evangelism. And the essence of missions for Paul was going places where Christ was not named. He had an ambition to proclaim the gospel where Christ was not named. Now, let me ask a question, and it's obvious here, but did Paul care about the health and development and growth of the churches he planted? Absolutely. Just read the epistles. He cared about evangelism, growing the church where it had been planted. He charged Timothy to keep his post. He doesn't tell Timothy, come to the frontier with me. He says, Timothy, fulfill the calling you've been given to strengthen and grow the church where it is. But Paul had this ambition. It was focused on people's who didn't even know there was a Jesus to believe in. There's some questions that I have often heard from Christians uh, more times than I like to recall, and here's a few of them. Why are we going there? There are so many lost people and needs right here. I'm not exaggerating. I've heard that hundreds of times. I've been involved in missions mobilization 25 years. I have heard that hundreds of times. Why? There. Have you looked at our city, dude? Have you gone to the inner city? Why are we going there? There are so many needs and lost people right here. Or why are we going there? It's so costly. And it's so dangerous. Why would we send the sons and daughters of our church, to peoples that hate the United States of America? Why would we send them to live under regimes that are hostile to Christianity, and besides, they're so resistant to the gospel? I wonder if Paul was ever asked similar questions. If he was asked those questions, we don't necessarily have his answers. But based upon his writings, let me suggest what I believe Paul would have said if he was asked, why are you going there, Paul? So many lost people here, Paul. I'm going to those with no access to the gospel who've never heard of our Savior and King. The lost and needy around you, well, guess what? They have you. 
Your neighbors here who've never heard a clear presentation of the gospel, but would if you would get out of your house and cross the street? They've got you. Do the work of an evangelist. Be the church. Be a disciple. I'm going where there is no churches and therefore there's no evangelism. I'm going to regions beyond even if it costs me my life. I think that's what Paul would have said. You stay here and address those needs. That's what the church is for. To be a transforming agent in the culture, bringing the light of the gospel and yes, even visible transformation to society. That's your job. Do that work where you're at. Cut wood. Whatever you need to do, share the gospel at Starbucks, on the soccer field, go to the inner cities, be salt and light wherever you're at, but I'm taking the salt and light where there is none. So today, folks, of the world's 11,741 ethnos, this is according to the International Mission Board. If you're a note taker, you like this type of of geeky stuff here, 11,741 people groups on planet Earth today. Their total number combined is the population of the world, which I think is about 7.5 or 7.6 billion. Every time you look at the population meter, it's just scrolling. So the total number of people among those 11,741 is the population of the planet. Well, folks, 7,000 of them, 7,000 of them, numbering, some estimate, 2.7 billion souls have little to no gospel access. And that may shock you. Like, you're thinking, what about technology? Well, one, technology is helpful and it should be utilized. We use it as a church in our missions efforts, but it doesn't make disciples, right? It's life on life. But not only that, they live in areas of extreme restriction where they don't have access to that content. Some of them are in places that are not reachable because of terrain. There's all types of factors. But 7,000 of them numbering nearly 2.7 billion, these folks are the gospel destitute They are the places where Christ has not been named. And so among those places, the people groups cannot glorify God for his mercy. They cannot worship him because they don't know about his mercy. Think about this for a minute. Among those groups, Jesus is unknown. They they might have heard the name, a concept, but the gospel's not known. He's unknown, unloved, unacknowledged, unadored, unworshipped and they are not unreached with the gospel because they are unreachable folks they're not reached because we've chosen not to reach them we need gospel ambition like Paul had third thing I want to draw to this and it's also relevant to DSC this gospel ambition is for every church and for every child of God I said we'd answer that question and of course you knew the answer before I even came to this point But it's, yes, verse 24 here. And I'm not going to linger here because Josiah did such a great job hitting on this. But verse 24, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, is what he says. Again, his gospel ambition has been fulfilled from Jerusalem to Illyricum. His work is done. Church has been planted. He's moving on to take the gospel and to plant churches where there is none, where the gospel is not being proclaimed. And along the way, he wants to visit the church in Rome, and it says, he says, to be helped on my journey there by you. I want to be helped by you as I head now to Spain. So clearly, Paul did not intend for everyone to go with him, 
right? But he did intend or maybe expect that they all participate. They were not all called to be missionaries, but clearly he was inviting them into this gospel ambition. He wanted them to share in it, and he says, helping me on my journey. What does that mean? It meant doing whatever it would take to get him there and to keep him there. Prayer, spiritual air cover. Again, Josiah hit on this. The church in Philippi is a great example of that. They could help him on his journey by providing spiritual air cover, by calling down fire power from heaven. That's what prayer is. John Piper, he says, the reason prayer malfunctions is because we have turned the wartime walkie-talkie of prayer into a domestic intercom. So instead of calling in firepower for our frontline workers on the field, he said, we're using it like a domestic intercom calling in for room service. Room service, please. That's why it malfunctions. One of the ways we can be a part of this effort is through prayer. Again, spiritual air cover. And then finances and resources. These are the supply lines, the merchant marines, the sending, the supporting that Josiah talked about. We see it in action in the church of Philippi here. And again, don't you love that Paul celebrates that partnership with the church? He celebrates goers and he celebrates senders and supporters as well. And he already hit on this, but I want to unpack it just a little bit because it's just so rich. We know that this love gift from Philippi came to Paul through Epaphroditus, right? Paul's in prison. The gospel's not chained. In fact, God uses that to unfurl the gospel. But he needs some help and support and encouragement. And so Philippi steps up and they send Epaphroditus, fellow worker, and again, fellow soldier. There's war metaphors here, folks. This is spiritual warfare. Fellow soldier for the truth. So the church in Philippi um, could not uproot. They could not all go and visit Paul. That's unrealistic. So they sent a representative, as Josiah talked about, and they brought a love gift, finances, as Josiah mentioned as well. This church brought presents, P-R-E-S-E-N-T-S, money. But they also bought presents, P-R-E-S-E-N-C-E. He was a tangible expression of the love of the church in Philippi, folks. This is so powerful. What was lacking in their love for him? Nothing. I mean, look at this church in Philippi that Josiah talked about. What was missing was the delivery of the love in person. And so he is sent back with these words, receiving with the Lord, with all joy, in the Lord with all joy, honor such men. Wow. Esteem is given to Epaphroditus because in the delivery of this love gift, he risked his life and he completed your love. He delivered it. Did Epaphroditus have gospel ambition? As my mom would say, you betcha. You betcha. He was not a missionary. He may have been a short-term missionary, but he was not a missionary. He did not uproot and plant himself on the field among a people or place that didn't have the gospel, but he did deliver this love gift. He risked his life to keep Paul doing what he was doing. And that calling, folks, in some measure is on all of us. It should be on every child of God. The aim of gospel ambition is that the nations would glorify God for his mercy, is that the nations would come to worship Jesus. And to that end, God raises up missionaries, sent out ones, with 
a gifting given by the Spirit, appointed by the Spirit, affirmed in the context of a local church, raised up, sent out. So he uses the church to identify those folks, to send them out, and then church and people within the church do the sending and the supporting and the moral support and all that that entails. So gospel ambition is for every church, folks. Sadly, a lot of churches are marginalizing it, but it's for every church, it's for every child of God, not for some churches, not for some believers, not for the super spiritual. It's at the heart of Christianity because it's at the heart of scriptures. In fact, it's at the heart of God himself. So let's get practical here. Again, I'm not gonna spend a lot of time here. Josiah did a great job, but some different roles, goers. Josiah talked about that. I'm thinking of here the full-time goer, the C's and the G's and others, identified, again, by leadership of the church, sent out the front line, the tip of the spear, taking the gospel to places it's not been. And then the senders, those who provide the supply lines, the support, the intercessors, the mobilizers. Maybe some of you are not called to go, but you're called to rally the troops. You can be a part of the missions team here. Welcomers. We have the nations coming to us because of migration Acts 17, you wonder what's happening with the refugee situation, you know, with the borders, all those things. Just set the political stuff aside. Say, God, what are you doing? Well, he is getting people out all around the world so that some may seek him. He determines the boundaries and the places where people live. And I don't care if they're here legally or illegally. It doesn't matter. If you run into them, share the gospel with them, right? That's what we're called to do. Welcomers. So just a few ways, goers, senders, intercessors, mobilizers, welcomers, and you can fulfill various roles. And I want to mention something. If you're here wondering, what's my part? How can I participate in the global vision of DSC? Just visit Josiah. He'll tell you. Say, I'm interested. How can my gifts and resources and abilities be plugged into this gospel ambition that our church has? So something I love about missions here is that it really is accessible to everyone. I was looking at the list earlier during the slides of what this week is about, and just the simple, practical ways that you can step in to the global vision of this church. There's these broad sets of opportunities. Children can participate, and everyone all the way up to the seniors, everyone can be a part of this regardless of vocation or ability. There's a spot for you in this church. Last thing I want to look at is um, gospel ambition. Where is it going? So we've defined what it is. It's this passion to know Christ, make Christ known. We know it's founded and fueled by the Bible. We know that it's focused on regions beyond, namely Gentiles, people groups that have never heard. We know that it's for every church, every child. But where is it going? And we're going to step out of Romans now. Turn with me to Revelation 7. I'm going to read a couple verses here. Revelation 7, 9 through 12. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation. From all tribes and peoples and languages, you could insert Gentiles right there too. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God 
forever and ever. Amen. So in this, what I consider to be a breathtaking passage, I hope you read this passage and you just stop. The Holy Spirit peels back the curtains of time and space. And we get a glimpse into the end that all of history is moving towards. And we see the Lamb of God, slain from the foundations of the world, receiving the reward of his suffering. What is that reward? It's worship. It's worship that is flowing from the redeemed, from every nation, tribe, and tongue. This is the resolution of God's story. This is the resolution of the epic. It's interesting. The church is inaugurated in a global context in Acts chapter 2. Read it when you can on your own. Inaugurated in a global context. The church is consummated in a global context. The lamb is receiving all that he is due so when in heaven, folks, when, when we are worshiping, bowing before the Lamb alongside these untold numbers of worshipers from the Achi, from North Africa, from the Navajo, from every nation, every tribe, every tongue, there will be no doubt as to what God's ultimate missions was. And we will know then beyond the shadow of a doubt that this mission was the greatest movement in history. So I believe that there are many people that have ambitions that aren't going anywhere, so to speak. I asked you when we started, if people asked you what you were about, what would it reveal? I think a lot of people have ambitions that aren't going anywhere. They have ambitions that won't mean much in the light of eternity. Maybe they're trivial and inconsequential. Now, there are some people that have ambitions that are outright evil, but I don't think that's the case for believers. But I am concerned that for many believers, they do not possess this gospel ambition. And here's the thing. When we enter into this scene in Revelation 7, really, when it's actually happening, there's no believer, no child of God will say, I regret that I had so much gospel ambition. <laughs> I regret that I made so much of God's mission when I was on earth, that I, that I spent so much time mobilizing and interceding and praying, whatever. I regret that I did that. That won't happen. But I think there are some believers who will say, how did I make insignificant what is clearly, now I see clearly, what one of the most major and weightiest issues in the universe you see, all of God's children saved by faith, they're in Christ, they're going to witness this heavenly celebration and scene. But I believe only those who join God in this business of making disciples of all nations will have this joy. He talked about the heavenly rewards. I often wonder what they are. We don't have explicit ideas. But here's my speculation here, okay? If we've joined in this gospel ambition, and we witness and celebrate that joy with those untold numbers of worshipers, we will have the delight of joy in knowing that while I was on earth, God's grace worked in me and through me to bring those worshipers here. And our heavenly crowns will redound with acclamations of praise that will go to Christ because we lived with gospel ambition. There will be a shared joy with those nations, those tribes and those people from other tongues. So my friends, gospel ambition should give context, meaning, and purpose to all of life. It should define our mission 
Didn't say you were all missionaries, right? It should define your life purpose. It should guide our ministry, shape how we live here and now because there's nothing happening in the world today, I believe, that is more important than the mission of Jesus Christ. Through his church, he is fulfilling this epic, unstoppable story of redemption. So why do we send missionaries to the hard places? biblical it's what God has called us to it's for every church every child and the amazing thing about this this just blows my mind if we've joined God in this purpose he will reward us for the very things he enabled us to accomplish is that just crazy I mean think of mercy and grace right Mercy is the withholding of deserved judgment, and God preserved justice, as we know, by punishing Jesus in our place. He gives us grace. He counts to us the righteousness of Jesus, so he's our law keeper, our curse bearer, and because of that, we stand before him righteous and forgiven. He makes us as boys and girls, but it doesn't stop there. He says, I'm calling you into this story of redemption. You have a part to play. Go or send or mobile, whatever. You have a role in this business. And then he supplies you with grace and gifts and resources. And they pass through your hands into his purposes. And then he rewards you in heaven for the very things he enabled you to accomplish. Is that amazing? You're going to see that and like... I can't believe I got to do this. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for for Jesus. We thank you that we are your boys and your girls. And wonder of wonders, we're called into this family business of discipling all nations. This ambition that Paul had was, was not just for super apostles, It's for every one of your children. And I pray that if the people in earshot of this message, whether online or live, if they've not yet found their place, I pray that they would find their place. We don't have to do this. God, we get to do this. I pray that we would find the joy that you offer us by being a part of this great work. And Lord, I pray now that you would bless and establish the work of the hands of our sent ones. We pray that the gospel would extend um, in those places in North Africa, among the Navajo, among the Achi, that the word of God would run swiftly and be glorified in these places. And we thank you that we're a part of something that cannot fail, it cannot abort. We thank you for this heavenly scene in Revelation 7, that no matter how tough things get, we know the outcome, we know the end of the story. So we can labor in hope, even in the midst of hardship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.